Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of the Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on Sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit Sojo.net. Today I am speaking with Haypen Im. I'm delighted that she's joined us today about her leadership amidst the increase in violence and disproportionate impact of the pandemic experienced by the Asian American Pacific Islander community. AAPI, as you hear more and more these days, and this is one of, I think, the most powerful voices from that community. Hapen M., former U.S. presidential appointee on the Board of Corporation for National Community Service is president and founder of Faith and Community Empowerment. Faith and Community Empowerment, F-A-C-E is the acronym, a national nonprofit dedicated to empowering churches and nonprofits and a voice for the Asian American community. Since its inception in 2001, 2001, she's been doing this for a long time, FACE has had over 800 partners, ranging from the White House to Fortune 500 companies. Hapen is a frequent speaker who has been on CNN and NPR, whose opinions have appeared in the Los Angeles Times and the Washington Post. She has presented at numerous conferences, including those at the White House, U.S. Department of Labor, Christian Community Development Association, and the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco. She has a BS from UC Berkeley, MBA from the University of Southern California, and an MDiv summa cum laude from Wesley Theological Seminary. Hapen, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the invite. So let me start with, with this question before we get into all the issues we have to face in these days. Hapen, how is your spirit these days? Um, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. I read this passage um, of Moses uh, being told all the things that he needed to do to build the tabernacle. And it's one of those like daily reading series. And I remember reading and thinking, oh my gosh, if I was Moses, I think I would be truly overwhelmed. <laughs> um, but the next day um, I read of how God had op- appointed Bezalel and Oholiab, as well as other able workers, to be able to uh, help Moses, uh, giving them the spirit and the craftsmanship and everything else. And so part of me does feel overwhelmed in terms of of being um, just many ways of all the growing anti-Asian hate. You know, there were over 3,800 incidents reported and and more, and also the recent Atlanta massacre, um, and feeling unsafe. And yet at the same time that I realize that there's this window of opportunity in which the world is, including America, is finally inviting the Asian community to the table uh, to speak. And and so in that way, there's a part of me that feels the sense of uh, responsibility um, as well as being wise steward uh, of this time. And so I, I, I feel overwhelmed, yet gratitude that God is sending all these opportunities and the people to help me on this journey. Well, uh, that Moses often felt overwhelmed is <laughs> good to remind ourselves of because people who are genuine leaders uh, uh, often... Uh, do feel that, like almost like as you can understand, they've been incoming fire every day, all day long. And you clearly are a leader in this moment. So I'm glad you uh, admitted that vulnerability that many, in, in fact, can relate to. In fact, let me begin by helping our listeners understand uh, to identify who you are 
and have been for a long time now in my own relationship to your leadership for many years. You, you were one of the very first uh, Asian American voices, Asian American Christian voices that I began to listen to and relate to and do things with many years ago. Uh, you were organizing, convening, catalyzing Asian American leaders and voices. And you had these conferences in DC and elsewhere that you invited me to come and speak. And I always had a great time and you were very well organized and you turned out lots of people and you, you did this all as an Asian American woman and a Korean woman in particular. And I imagine that hasn't always been easy. So, <laughs> so I'd like to give you a chance to speak a little bit about your own story and pilgrimage to this point in our history before we get to some of the issues facing us today. Well, so I think you do bring a good point, and particularly the Korean faith community is unique in that 75% of our community is connected with the church. That's not true in South Korea, but because of the Korean immigrant experience to the United States where they were invited by U.S. missionaries to work uh, at the sugar plantations and they thought they were coming to paradise, but they actually ended up becoming really indentured servants. Um, and so the church has played a very significant role in the life of the Korean community. And some of the mega churches range from 1,000 to 8,000 uh, people who actually show up on Sunday morning. Uh, but as you may uh, believe uh, it is male dominated. And when I first started on this journey, and even now I have to say, um, you know, being women and especially back then younger looking, <laughs> um, and especially at the time I didn't have a divinity degree for all those kind of things. Um, it was uh, really the work of God that I was able to get their attention. Um, there's a lot of biases I have experienced over time, but I have to say that, you know, power does not relinquish. And what I've seen is that through the grace of God, that when the White House and others uh, recognize me, um, the very people that would not acknowledge me, <laughs> but standing on their shoulders and being a voice uh, for the community, I was able to get, get the attention of very powerful people outside the community. And when they acknowledge me through God's grace, uh, that many of the pastors did so as well. Uh, but I think it's a day-to-day, moment-by-moment. And um, again, I stand here because of so many miracles that God has provided for me. And I have to say, in my personal journey here, my uh, dad, who's a minister, and my mom, actually, as well, uh, told me I should go to seminary when I was in seventh grade. Um, or go into ministry, right? And I remember thinking, gosh, that's like the last thing I wanted to do. And there was actually domestic violence in my family as well. So th I saw the good and the ugly. And, uh, but also I just saw people were very poor and I just said, I don't want any of this. But uh, my mom's story was a story of Jonah where God called her and she ran away and she went through hell and ended up having to do ministry anyway. So I remember at that moment, I told God, if you ever call me, please make it really clear <laughs> and I will obey. And in 2000, God made it really clear. And I sent off the application for seminary and all the doors that closed in my life swung wide open, uh, truly in an amazing uh, way. The second piece of my journey is that um, my parents being in ministry, they really did a lot of God's work of teaching the Bible and you know leading people uh, to know Jesus and all that. But they also ended up really becoming unpaid social workers because of the need in the congregation was so great in terms of you know as uh, help for housing and jobs, you know healthcare, etc. And for what they did have, they did good. But I realized that um, the struggle was real. And in my heart, I always carried this desire, could there be a better way? And when I grew up, I got to know uh, Pastor Murray and Reverend Mark Whitlock with First Amy Church. They were doing the very same things that my parents were doing, but because they had created an affiliated nonprofit, they could tap into the powers, right, of 
government and, and corporate America and the resources and the partnership uh, that allow for mutuality. So uh, the first, their offering was $3 million, but they were able to bring in $12 million, right? Four times the offering. So they could do so much more work and so much more impact. But also, uh, as a Korean American coming out of the LA riots, I saw our community kick down and crying, crying alone, uh, with no one there to cry with us. And I saw this model of mutuality where the stakeholders were now lauding the work of the church and rooms and places where God's usually not honored, or churches are not named, or communities of color are not named. Um, and then finally, because of that um, uh, lifting up of their work, they were uh, welcomed um, and recognized for their contribution and their influence grew and the welcome. And so when important decisions were being made, they were invited to the decision-making table. And I see as an Asian American and also as a faith leader that a lot of times we are absent in those decision-making rooms. Um, and so I saw this amazing win-win-win, win-win-win model uh, where ultimately God gets honored too. And I thought, geez, I wanna bring this to my community. And long story short, a lot of miracles later, uh, in 2001, our organization formed. So that's a little bit of a journey <laughs> to how I've come today. It is indeed. Well, I remember when you called me and were very convincing to come and join this this new group for a gathering. And I went and had such a great experience there. I remember I kept coming back whenever you asked. So. And you were so gracious. Thank you, Jim. I know your schedule's really busy, but thank you, as always, for being so gracious. Well, you were you were very compelling and you were convening people which I really saw right off the, the bat. And to do that as a woman in the Asian American community and a Korean woman and a whole lot of male pastors were in the room, but they were doing whatever you told them, which I thought was great. So, so, so let's get to some of the tough questions that we have here. Uh, we're facing in the wake of the Atlanta shooting and other acts of violence targeted at AAPI people there has been more media attention on this dire matter. How do we sustain that attention? How do we cultivate solidarity going forward and take action in support of the AAPI community? Thank you so much. I think for the longest time since the beginning of U.S. history, um, you know, the Asian community, actually, the first Asian was a Filipino who came to the U.S. continent in the 1500s, actually. Uh, but because of U.S. immigration policies that excluded uh, not just Chinese, but all Asians from coming to the United States, our current numbers are rather low. And I think that, you know, really, at the end of the day, power doesn't relinquish. And, and so no matter what color you are, um, you know, the people in power will use you, whoever you are, who are not in power, uh, to advance their uh, agenda. And so um, contrary to the model minority myth, the Asian community has been uh, targets of systemic racism from, again, exclusion to, to the United States, immigration to the United States, to lynching, to killing, to uh, stealing our wealth. Uh, to being sexualized and fetishized and, and so much more. Um, and so I think that uh, the Atlanta massacre was just, again, um, I think a tipping point uh, of, again, I mentioned not just the 3,800 hate incidents that were reported, but all the other incidents that for which Asian community have never been given permission, where we felt safe to articulate our pain. And for those few who chose to do so, we will be quickly silenced or omitted uh, in any of the documentation or discussion. And so in that way, I believe that, um, you know, a lot of the hate crimes, um, you know, we could say, yes, President Trump uh, did by calling Kung flu and China flu and Wuhan flu, just all that definitely instigated and gave permission uh, for people to express hate uh, towards Asians. Uh, but I think that there's also an underlying um, uh, tensions uh, that have always been present because 
the Asian community has been portrayed um, as a model minority. And in the 60s, the Time Magazine article was uh, propagated really to pit the Asian community against other communities. And so I would say that if there were some really tangible things that could be done, one is to combat the model minority myth. Um, and basically because it robs us of solidarity of, uh, with other communities of color and underserved communities. Um, it robs us of being able to lift up our pain and to be acknowledged. And also then um, the opportunities for investments and resources when uh, decisions are made to help hurting communities. And so I would say as a policy that uh, there will be more data points because a lot of times when um, the Asian community, there's over 80 communities. Did you know that under AAPI? Well, 80. 80. Over 80 plus, right? Extraordinary. So it's kind of mm -hmm. like, you know, um, it'll be like putting United States with, I don't know, Kenya, like, you know, different languages, different culture. It has nothing to with one another, but it's just an artificial political aggregation of communities. And so, um, again, each of us have experienced different journeys, different history, um, and, 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 and also, again, points of pain. So as an example, one is the high educational attainment. If you do look in the aggregate, you'll see that actually Asians, uh, compared to any other group, have the highest educational attainment, whether it's uh, bachelor's, master's, you know, PhD, doctorate, or professional degrees. Uh, but at the same time, I would say the Pacific Islander community actually has the highest high school dropout rate of any group. Um, and so, you know, if you don't look under the trunk, as you say, uh, if you don't disaggregate the Asian community, um, you, it's going to really misrepresent uh, who needs help, including again many subgroups as well. Um, and then I would say again, throughout history, uh, we've been there. I know that one of the accusations that uh, I have heard recently from uh, particularly um, leaders from the black community who'd say that some of their friends or the people in their network say, hey, you know what, why should we show up for them when, you know, Asians have, <coughs> have never showed up for us? And, you know, for that, I would say I would like to give three answers. Uh, one is that we have been there, but a lot of times we're cut out of the picture frame. Uh, even with um, Cesar Chavez, actually, uh, it was a Filipino leader who actually started the whole, uh, you know, great strike uh, and protest. And it was through them that uh, they were able to then have Cesar Chavez and also then take on. But no one talks about the Filipino community and their leadership. Uh, but over and over again, many of us have been present uh, to lift up and to fight um, with the Black community. But uh, we were just never important enough. Um, and we're being constantly told that. And the second piece is that you know, over 70% of Asian community are limited English speakers. And so in that way, they're foreign born. Um, and so for many of them, they're just in a survival mode. And so for many of them, they don't even know how to come and show up for themselves, right? Because of their survival mode. And then the third piece is that I think for leaders like myself, you know, um, I have to say during this whole uh, anti-Asian hate, and especially after the uh, Atlanta massacre, so many people reached out to me um, and, you know, people have showed support, including yourself, Jim, for which I'm grateful. But I particularly have to say I was really impressed with many of the leaders from the Black community who reached out personally, as well as their social media platform to, to speak truth, right, to push back the narrative about the Asian American community, especially on the Atlanta massacre, where they tried to depict many of the victims and the massage parlor as something that was uh, less than, um, you know, kosher per se. And these are 60, 70 year old women, right? And it's just unbelievable. But anyway, um, and so I, I, it's only again, you know, some of my like, like myself who are very vocal in many other platforms, but I have to say that through this experience of being a recipient 
of the voices of other communities um, and their support that I'm just starting on my journey to reclaim my voice. For so long, um, our voices have been silenced, right? And devalued and dismissed that I think for many of us, we're just starting to learn and reclaim um, our voice so that we could be a voice not only for ourselves, but for those around us. So any kind of policies, right, that will make sure that Asians are included um, in all initiatives to look and say, where are the Asians and to disaggregate, right? That's one. And I would say, you know, the um, it's recent that the black brown community, even though there's been historic tensions, have been able to build solidarity. And, and so whenever people talk about underserved communities, they say black brown. It just literally rolls off the tip of people's tongues, right? But I really would like to recommend not just black brown, but maybe to include Asian. Right. Um, that, that would be really helpful. And also, again, as a policy on the PowerPoints, the talking points, and also the people on stage, that they would also include Asians. Um, and to dig deeper, uh, to find out about uh, the suffering and the pain, uh, you know, the discriminations, the, the low home ownership rate, the mental health trauma, the COVID-19 death. You know, that we're one of the highest, if not the highest in many cities, um, but we continue to be left out of those spaces as well. So you use this phrase several times now. There's a lot in what you just said. I want to unpack a couple of things. It's really important for people to learn from what you've just said. The model minority myth, the model minority myth. Explain to our listeners what that is and how it impacts the Asian American community in particular, and how it really disrupts and divides and destroys solidarity uh, with other people. Well, so, you know, because of the model minority myth, it's kind of like the good kid in the family. You know, if there are other kids that are causing trouble for whatever the reason, um, and the good kid, even though they may have challenges, uh, they're all constantly overlooked, or that's the assumption that they don't need help. And so, um, again, back in these uh, the '60s, Time magazine depicted Asians as look at Asians. You know, they're highly educated and they're succeeding in America. You know, what's wrong with you, other communities of color? And again, it really masked uh, the pain in our community. And so. You know, if I was a member of another community and we're being pitted against one another, especially, you know, if, if someone's put up artificially as a model, no kid, you know, growing up when their parents say, hey, look at so-and-so, why aren't you, um, you know, it's going to like that kid, right? And so, again, it really um, has pitted our community against other communities of color. And as mentioned, the black-brown solidarity, there's a lot of fights, whether it's on immigration, on discrimination, promotion in the workplace, of, you know, uh, mental health trauma, you know, even COVID-19. Um, communities of color, including Asians, we are all suffering at disproportionate levels. We are also frontline workers, essential workers, right? So again, we keep being left out. And it has also then created this sense of... Um, what is because of the lack of investments, many uh, of us are suffering in sil silence and the way that discrimination has been traditionally in the United States binary between black and white framework, everyone else's experience, which is also unique to them, have also then been erased or minimized. And so, again, because of that, we are not invited to many of these forums, discussions, or even policies or investments or funding um, opportunities that leave us out. It also causes, I think, an indifference because our stories are absent in history. So whether it's our contributions or our suffering. And so a lot of times in the absence of that and us being not invited to the decision-making rooms, um, others get to tell us who we are. And usually it's not kind. And, and so in that way, we become easy targets of hate when people are suffering. 
And so I would say the recent rise in the AAPI hate, um, although it's always been there, uh, but even like in the, the context of the Korean store owner um, slash black customer, and I think it has led to even broader Asian store owner, but next year is the 30th anniversary of the LA riots. But I would say in the recent optics, you see a lot of minorities hitting and hurting and assaulting uh, the Asian community. And I would say for many of us, you know, our experience uh, in police response, just as with other communities of color, have been <laughs> non-responsive, non-satisfying, and insulting. Um, and so even most recently, um, an 84-year-old gentleman who was sitting outside his store last year, he was like, like almost he felt like a kickboxing, like taekwondo kick into the face where his skull was broken. He had to have major surgery and everything. And uh, recently uh, we were told in the article that they received no justice and the perpetrator uh, is out free after a mental health treatment. And this poor gentleman, he's locked in his own home because he's fearful of being, you know, uh, attacked again. So there is that history uh, as well uh, to, so we're looked upon as easy targets. And then there's also narrative of us being greedy, not being generous, not being, uh, being racist. And a lot of that, there is definitely elements of truth. But when you look at kind of the trauma and many of these particular store owners uh, working in very dangerous neighborhoods, um, they are actually the victim of the second highest uh, homicide workplace homicide victim rate. So number one is taxi driver. And then if you're a convenience store employee, uh, you have this next highest rate of being killed on your job. So, you know, how many people would take on such a job, right? Unless they, their other options were worse. So there's all this kind of stuff that I think, again, puts many of us into this category of evil because others tell our story, right? As well. Right. Well, in let's go back to what you mentioned uh, a few moments ago about what has this violence and hatred's always been there, as you're helping us understand, but it was exacerbated by recent events. In a statement put out by your organization, it states that former President Trump's racist rhetoric, such as his insistence on employing the term Chinese virus, and his inflammatory hate speech has virally normalized hate violence. You go on to say Asians have been scapegoated and blamed for the pandemic and these narratives that have been projected throughout the media, especially from the executive levels of government, have given license, license, as you said before, permission for these heinous acts to occur. And so this violence and discrimination uh, I think, as you have said, this is really has to be understood theologically and not just politically. It's against our faith. It's denying the image of God, Imago Dei, in each and every person. And all the stories that we've heard about what what Asian Americans have gone through, uh, horrible, hateful, even lethal stories. Uh, one of the ones that hit me most was the how the wife of a friend of mine who's a pastor uh, loves to go out running as an, and she's an Asian woman and she's a runner. And all the times that she reports people, white people coming up to her while she's running just to cough in her face, to cough in her face. That hit me really hard as a normal experience of people that doesn't get reported in the news when a horrible event occurs like, like Atlanta. So what has faith and community empowerment, uh, face as your organization been doing to shed light on these issues and to empower these communities? Thank you so much. And so, uh, you know, um, some of the founders of the Stop AAPI Hate uh, are close friends, <laughs> um, people that we work with. And so we have been intentional in lifting up their work and asking people to report. Um, it's not so much that hate crimes and, you know, uh, have not necessarily been 
in, what is it, encouraged to report. People have been encouraged to report, but you know, it feels very unsatisfying when you report to some agency that gives you no feedback and there's no you know, clear answer. And so again, for Stop AAPI, hey, they've been able to, for the first time, congregate it and aggregate it into a very visible way. And I'm very also grateful for many of the journalists, especially uh, Asian journalists who have been able to then uh, lift, amplify uh, these data points. And I would say that between those two efforts with a lot of social media spaces and groups, um, again, I would say that our story has continued to be omitted and you know cropped out of the picture frame. But I'm very appreciative of the social media platform in that so many of us are creating our own platform and so that we could see each other and be then able to re-amplify it to the greater community. I've been in many, many rooms um, in discussions, uh, including you know, your invitation to, to advocate for opportunities to present and share our pain. Um, and I have to say, mo most recently, we've had a convening with Black cler clergy with the Asian community and uh, Asian uh, clergy. And we had a smaller kind of opportunity to kind of share our our pain. And I was very surprised that a very prominent leader was sharing how uh, uh, when we met at the White House uh, prayer breakfast that um, we, she was shocked that an Asian woman would come and have a, say a friendly hello uh, because all her experiences uh, have been with Asian vendors where perhaps that encounter has not been positive. And when I was able to share in that group showing the data points that really combat the modern minority myth and that we are truly in the same team, right? And that we are all in the same economic wheelchairs, that we are all uh, recipients of being victims of kind of a, a systemic racism. Um, it really opened her heart to see that really maybe some of the information that she had known of our community may have room for a greater understanding. And uh, one of the pastors actually, uh, you know, Dr. Barbara uh, William Skinner actually said, we should stop hating and start connecting. And so <laughs> I love it. I, I want to make that, uh, you know, a model go viral. And so I think that our work uh, has been, I mean, even today I have like four speaking engagements. Um, and basically we are sharing our pain um, and showing our contribution and that we're all on the same team and also advocating to, uh, for example, the White House, right? We gave some specific recommendations to relook at not just hate crimes uh, because the bar seems so high as well as to deal with hate incidents and to again support some of the efforts, including the legislative, legislative acts, right? That have been introduced, uh, recently passed on the, the House side and the Senate uh, to be able to track um, our um, these hate crimes and incidents, but also again to invest in our community uh, because I truly believe that God has given our light to each of us, God given light to each of the community. And I think about Susan Boyle with Britain's Got Talent. You know, when she came on stage, because she didn't look like the part everyone dissed her and dismissed her. Um, and yet when she was given that platform and she opened her mouth and started to sing, right? Her God-given light was finally recognizable. And that moment was transformative in how the world could be blessed by her uh, gifting and how her life could be blessed as well. And I think of that for the Asian community, but for so long, We've not been given that platform and the investments for us to really reach our full potential of what God has given us and to shine that light so that everyone can be blessed um, as well. I remember that moment and hearing her voice, and it was such a transforming moment. I remember on the call right after Atlanta that we had with our Faith Table, very broad group, diverse group of faith leaders, and you were one of the key spokespeople to that call about Atlanta and what it meant and 
what it meant going forward. Uh, and Barbara, uh, you mentioned Barbara Skinner, said, well, I stand ready to have that conversation between you and the black community. And then you had it. And I heard from her. Yes. And we're, there's some uh, opportunities, even with the ad council potentially as well. So we'll see where it all leads to. So thank you, Jim. <laughs> The, the model of minority myth, you've explained very well. Also, you've touched on this a couple of times. This notion as of Asian Americans, the language is perpetual foreigners, perpetual foreigners. You've mentioned that. And I've heard from many of my colleagues and friends who are Asian American, how I heard this from Walter Kim, who's the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, who was harassed a couple of weeks ago himself walking on the street and he's people said go go back to china well he's not chinese <laughs> and so so this whole go back to where you came from this perpetual foreigner thing that's a really deep part of the hatred in this country uh like the myth of the model minority perpetual foreigners when that just isn't true so speak to that language of perpetual foreigner, how that really feels uh, to Asian Americans for whom this is their country and their life and their history. Well, you know, I remember a terrible incident, actually, uh, Sungi Cho with the Virginia Tech uh, uh, school massacre. And, um, you know, Sungi was, um, I think he was like three when he came to the United States. I came when I was seven. And, you know, it was only recent years that I've learned to speak uh, better Korean language, but my home is America. And, you know, uh, it was very interesting to have them, uh, you know, described as South Korean versus Korean American. And so even in the news coverage of many uh, Asian Americans living in the United States, we are perceived as someone foreign, like someone like, that doesn't belong. Um, and so over and over again, I think that uh, when they talk about America, there's no picture of us on TV, on stage, in media. Uh, it leads to us always feeling like we don't have a say. We don't belong. And that has tremendous trauma. You know, I, as a believer and as a Christian, God tells us we are so much more, but because of what the world tells us, we actually do our own selves disservice of uh, not being able to think of or picture ourselves doing whatever it may be. Um, and I think in the same way for the Asian American community, for so long, we're being told constantly that we are a foreigner, we don't belong. And so by not belonging, then people could do things to us right? because we don't belong. Mm -hmm. Because you don't belong, right? You don't belong. Exactly. And exactly. that has been, um, again, on immigration laws, you know, um, I, I would say even criminal justice laws. I mean, COVID-19, just again, over and over, we're not treated. And I think there's many examples of even like um, well-known celebrities and athletes, right? Or even Congress members, <laughs> Asian Congress members going in to Congress and the security guards saying, you know, you know uh, pushing them out. Right. So over and over again, we don't fit that image of what America is supposed to represent. And and so in that way, uh, again, we are left out of the invites, the, 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 the rights and the privilege of being a full American citizen. And it means, again, targets for hate and exclusion and discrimination and all kinds of, of um, assaults as well. Well, and the... The, the Japanese camps called concentration camps really during the war, uh, there's so much powerful testimony there of what that meant. And that, that, that dramatic history is overlooked again and again in our uh, telling our national story. Right, especially because U.S. was at war, not just with Japan, but with Germany and Italy, but the German and Italian Americans were allowed to just continue on with their life, but not for the Japanese, right? Um, and also, again, I think it, this is, I think, consistent with, like, when um, uh, Black citizens in this country were able to gain wealth, uh, instead of celebrating their um, 
you know, uh, what is it, their advancement, uh, because they're also perceived as outsiders in certain ways, right? That it breeds jealousy and hate and anger. Um, and in the same way, when Asians took on jobs that, again, uh, invited by the companies because, you know, they weren't willing to pay, you know, their current workers. And, you know, for many of the Asians who were invited to come to this country to be used and abused, really. Uh, but because, again, we're looked upon as someone that doesn't belong, we are outsiders. Um, that, again, that their abuse and their killing of our lives and bodies is all acceptable. And there's been so many of these kind of lynching incidents where, again, the perpetrator, <laughs> they don't even get jail time because, again, we're outsiders, we're foreigners, um, and so we don't deserve the same level of justice as those who belong. Well, and the comparisons are always so, so clear and ignored. You mentioned there were no German camps for German-Americans. There were no Italian camps, and yet Japanese camps are like the comparisons between what black parents uh, today in America uh, feel uh, almost, you know, every day and what white parents feel, even in the body of Christ, how white Christian parents don't seem to even understand or acknowledge what black Christian parents feel about their fears of their kids and, and, and the, the police. All of these issues are so clear. And yet, uh, we're now trying to figure out how do we acknowledge uh, the truth. The truth-telling has to come in this nation. Truth, uh, reconciliation needs truth, uh, needs truth-telling. And then we move, but then we move into this. So you said in February of this year, and you wrote in the Asian American Christian Collaborative's Reclaim magazine, uh, I'm quoting you here, as Asian Americans, we should not be discouraged by the persistent omission and invisibility of our community, which you've been sharing with us today. Then you say, a positive sign of hope is President Biden's recent executive order to combat xenophobia, racism, and hate crimes against the AAPI community. So, um, Hapen, have you seen other positive signs of hope since writing that, especially in the wider Christian community? Um, yes. And I have to say that um, I could give you some different uh, examples of, of groups that are approaching us. And actually, even for President Biden, I have to say that um, around COVID-19, um, I know that he has mentioned about the disproportionate impact on Black and Brown communities, but not on Asians. But um, in a recent gathering, he actually said it, but uh, it was kind of awkward. You could tell it was awkward for him to include Asians because he starts with the black, brown, and then Asian American, he pauses, right? And then he says AAPI, and then he pauses. And then he says definitively Asian Pacific Islander, right? Um, and so I know that change is coming bit by bit. And even this uh, legislation, this bill, uh, the fact that, you know, last year when Congresswoman Grace Ming introduced and it was just totally killed to now even the Republican Party uh, expressing, you know, possibility of support uh, to uh, some different uh, institutions like the University of Southern California reached out to me um, in terms of ways that we might be able to collaborate uh, on race relations uh, in inviting the AAPI community. So, again, I see that uh, even this invite, Jim. I'm really honored again. Um, these kind of signs show that there is this maybe a, a growing understanding or recognition that the AAPI community also belongs in the United States, that we are all, again, on the same team. Um, and I see, again, whether it's, again, bills to policies, uh, the invitations um, that there's some debt that's happening, but as recently with the George Floyd case, you know, that was just one incident and immediately the, the same day, I think, or the next day, you know, another incident occurred. And so it does have to be ingrained into the policy um, and into history. Um, and so I guess that is still uh, one that we all need to be vigilant uh, on all fronts uh, in our fight for justice. Well, indeed, uh, there are these moments, uh, and you mentioned the uh, the verdict, which has just come down this week in the George 
Floyd case in Minneapolis. And there was the moment, uh, I'm, you know, people talk about some of us as veterans. I could say like we're old people have been doing this for a long time. Uh, but the, the moment of Birmingham, what happened in Alabama with Bull Connor and what Dr. King did and kids marching in the streets against uh, the sheriff's uh, clubs and dogs and fire hoses, that moment led to the Civil Rights Bill of 1964. Then the moment of Selma, uh, you know, where John Lewis was beaten almost to death on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. That was this moment that we have just recently celebrated the 50th anniversary of. But that moment led to to the Voting Rights Act with just in five, six months after that. So you mentioned earlier the Atlanta massacre. I was struck by, again, the word massacre. Uh, it, it took a massacre to reveal the suffering and the violence and the hate that's been there for a long time. Why does it take massacres to lift up the suffering of people who have been suffering? But this Atlanta massacre moment Unless this leads, as you just said so eloquently, to legislation, unless what happened with George Floyd in the verdict leads to real transformation of our policing and our criminal justice system, uh, moments have to lead someplace. And so my the, the power of a moment like Atlanta, which really you know creates a whole different conversation, has to lead to transformative change. So I guess my last question to you is, uh, is about that. Uh, there has been so much now overdue and needed conversation recently about how the impact of racial hatred and discrimination has impacted your Asian American community, our Asian American communities across the country, much needed and long overdue. But I wonder how you see this moment about also of revealing things that have been true for a long time, how this now can lift up the American Asian community and how it's impacted, how this moment and revealing of things has impacted Asian Asian Americans themselves. Do you think this has also strengthened the solidarity that Asian Americans are feeling in relationship to the black community, Hispanic community, uh, the Asian community, how how has it impacted your community itself? And how might this shape relationships and solidarity, deeper solidarity going forward? Um, so thank you so much, Jim. And as you say, this is this window of time, um, a tipping point um, that God has opened for our community uh, to be invited and to be listened to. And so for us, it's given us that safe space and the courage to be able to speak up and to express and to reclaim our voice and to also then uh, have this experience of great solidarity from all communities. Um, and so I think that new relationships or strengthening of relationships and the ability to see each other even in new light, uh, including myself, I, I mentioned that you know, I've had long-standing relationship with the Black community as one example, but the Jewish, Latino, you know, Caucasian community. Uh, but there was kind of a new moment of, of, of gratitude, solidarity. And I think that we're all experiencing that. I think even with uh, George Floyd, you know, protests, there was a lot of Asians that also showed up as well. So again, we're able to then see each other better and for which then the relationships get to new levels of trust uh, and new opportunities to work together. Uh, the way God intended, I think. So. Well, that's worth that's worth um, praying about and acting on. And uh, sometimes in these podcasts, I, I invite the, the guest to where the person is appropriate to ask uh, to close in prayer. And so to ask uh, uh, a Christian leader like you to close in prayer of this, pray us out of this conversation makes sense to me, an Asian American Christian leader and an Asian American Christian woman leader in particular, to to pray us out of this conversation into the kind of solidarity and relationship and action that this moment requires. So could you say a prayer for us here at the end? Dear God, we thank you for this moment. Um, when Hagar uh, was uh, r- ran out, 
um, and was running away and you sought her out, she called you the God who sees me. Thank you, Lord, that you see us and you have allowed for this time where the greater community uh, could also see the Asian American community. And yet, Lord, uh, you prayed before you left this earth, Lord, that we may be one. And Lord, so I pray for each of us, whether we're black, brown, yellow, red, white, Lord, that we could truly see each other the way you have meant for each one of us to see the image of God. And Lord, that we do not fight over crumbs, Lord, but that the abundance that you created, even in the feeding of the 5,000 with just five loaves and two fish, Lord, that when we can identify in each one of us our God-given gift and we commit it to you, Lord, and then once we share that scarcity will turn into abundance. And so, Lord, we pray for abundance in this country, for love, Lord, for greater insight and sight, as well as to be able to feel with your love. Thank you, Lord. And we pray for leaders like Jim Wallace, Lord, that you will continue to stand and encourage and strengthen uh, so that they will continue to be that voice, to reclaim that voice that you have given each one of us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Dear sister, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. <laughs> to hear more from Haypenim, then you need to hear more from her. Follow her on Twitter at Haypen and Faith and Community. Haypen, H-Y-P-E-I-N and Faith Community. Empower, empower, Faith and Empowerment website, Face website, which is Face. F-A-C-E-L-A dot org. Face-L-A dot org. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me if you'd like on Twitter at Jim Wallace. Uh, blessings, and let us pray for and bless the soul of America. Mm-hmm.